This is Insomniac Leopard. My name is Josh Wagner, coming to you live from Los Angeles, California. Where does life come from and how will it end? We have a show for you today about beginnings and endings of the universe, of meaning, and of life as we know it in 2021. What is living? What is dead in our world? And what haven't we realized has already died? Here's the question. How can we live our everyday lives, buy cottage cheese, and survive a global pandemic while knowing that the world will one day explode? As Lauren Orler writes, if not by exponential environmental catastrophe, then by some combination of nuclear war, the American two-party system, patriarchy, white supremacy, gentrification, globalization, data breaches, and social media. For Jorge Luis Borges, there is no whole self. It suffices to walk any distance along the inexorable rigidity that the mirrors of the past open to us in order to feel like outsiders, naively flustered by our own bygone days. Wholeness, unity, coherence. For Borges, these words describe the opposite of life, a stable and legible sense of self which can be utilized and transacted in any number of ways. Survival means having a coherent story to tell about who you are and what you're doing here. But Borges, in his light morbidity, knows this to be false. Passions, flings, and other enticing objects of affection are not buried deep within human consciousness, but are out there, out there in the world. We lack a basic understanding of ourselves and what we stand for. And after we die, those objects of affection will live on until the death of the universe itself. Our common understanding of identity and selfhood is concerned with the everyday. But it's this universal death I like to think about today. With the help of Tom Moynihan, lover of barnacles, Caselic, and extinction, and who currently serves as a research contractor at Oxford's Future of Humanity Institute. Since I was young, I've always wondered what having this perpetual sense of catastrophe and collapse meant. Whether it's the next nuclear apocalypse, earthquake, genocide, or other biopolitical calamity, our lives are constantly under attack. History doesn't work like it used to. The broad expanse of the future has instead been replaced by an oppressive future and an all-too-distant past. Tom's first book, Spinal Catastrophism, locates the future of the universe in the form of a spine, an eclectic cabinet of curiosities and folds between ghostly images of crooning skulls and inflected serpentine spines, and the mysterious figure of D.C. Barker of the Anorganic Semiotics Department at Kingsford College. At the core of Tom's book is a concern for the future. How can we imagine a future without the human as a point of reference? Is death thinkable? In the words of Jean Valentine, who died just a few months ago, I came to you, Lord, because of the fucking reticence of this world. No, not the world, not reticence. Lord, come. Lord, come. 
We were sad on the ground. Lord, come. We were sad on the ground. But more importantly, these threads are picked up in Tom's latest book from MIT Press, X-Risk, How Humanity Discovered Its Own Extinction, which delves into an intellectual history of human existence. When did humans become aware of our own species' death? Something which we are all too familiar with today. Welcome to the show, Tom. Thanks for having me. Before we get into my main questions, I have to ask, what's been the most riveting or influential work that people should read but haven't heard of? Um, Oh, that's a great question. It's potentially quite an academic book, but I devoured it. It's a book on the Fermi paradox. So that's the question, why haven't we seen evidence of intelligent life elsewhere? It's a book on that called uh, The Great Silence, The Science and Philosophy of the Fermi Paradox by a Serbian physicist called Milan Cirkovic. And basically what it is, is a massive compendium of all the possible explanations for cosmic silence. To some people, it kind of come off as quite an obscure, scientific, astronomical question. More than most of the kind of perennial approaches of philosophy and cultural studies and theory, I think it just really cuts straight to the heart of the most important questions facing us in the 21st century. Cool. So do you have a favorite explanation for that cosmic silence? So there's a different in terms of aesthetic payload, I guess, or gelling with ideas of what would be, I guess, just interesting. That would be uh, one proposed by the the Polish science fiction author and philosopher Stanislav Lem in the 80s. The most common explanations for cosmic silence, uh, um, at least historically, have been kind of catastrophist ones. So the idea that civilizations elsewhere in space kind of tend to invent some deadly technology and to be wipe themselves out. So, you know, the question was first posed in a Cold War context, and you can kind of guess where people's minds went instantly was that, you know, um, intelligence is, you know, here, here and elsewhere, unlock the atom and then, you know, immolate themselves in thermonuclear holocausts. Lem had this far more interesting and in a sense optimistic explanation is that basically uh, to manipulate its environment, you know, so kind of we've wrought intelligence upon the earth by covering it in cities and transport networks. And, you know, intuitively that might make us think that as intelligence advances and civilization becomes more advanced, uh, it would become far more visible because it would be, you know, massive structures the size of galaxies and, you know, colonized uh, solar systems and things like that. Why don't we see them? Well, Lem said, well, if, if intelligence is the ability to manipulate its environment, eventually at a level of sophistication, the distinction between the environment and the intelligence will itself collapse. Manipulation at the absolute largest cosmic scale, basically, you know, the environment and the intelligence become indistinguishable because it's so seamlessly ingrained with the way that things are. So he claimed that, you know, basically the laws of nature themselves, the things that we observe most immediately and uh, constantly are in themselves the evidence of these kind of like ancient, deified, hyper-advanced intelligences. It's, you know, it's a really interesting hypothesis, but um, yeah, plausible is a different question. Uh, In terms of plausibility, I think the evidence is kind of tending towards the fact that we may well be the only, the only intelligence within our galaxy and perhaps even further abroad. Yeah, that's uh, my favorite in both of those senses. 
I have a lot of questions about your work, but I guess one place to start is with your first book, Spinal Catastrophism. And I'm only interested in this point near the end where you start talking about Schopenhauer and these cycles of like redemption and extinction. And I think you talk about like the logic of universal self-annihilation and that the only way to ensure the human race doesn't return is by removing the potential for any other future nervous system. And I'm just curious, like about a year later, do you still agree with that claim? And how do you see that kind of logic of extinction playing out? I've never agreed with Schopenhauer or his followers. It's a very interesting line of thought because Schopenhauer, in a sense, kind of reached some really huge questions quite early on. I, I think he's absolutely wrong. My issue with Schopenhauer is the sense that what kind of engenders his entire philosophy is that he believes very much that the world is fallen. He was a thoroughly Christian atheist, but because he doesn't believe in the Godhead or any kind of redemptive factor, basically creation has fallen, but we can't do anything about it. Schopenhauer explicitly said that he thinks we live in the worst of all possible worlds. That's a very strong metaphysical claim. And I think just goes against the major lessons of modernity. The Schopenhauerian is led into this dark place where they say, yeah, you know, because it cannot be redeemed in principle, we need to kind of destroy it. Yeah, I mean, there are so many things that are wrong with that. There's a basic thing of epistemic modesty, which is that say you want to destroy the universe, you have to be 100% sure that your moral axiology is right because you're removing the variability for you or anyone else to ever correct it or revise it. Their premises and conclusions might be wrong, but the process of being like, hey, ethics is this confusing, messy thing. But for the whole of history, we've kind of been thinking about it in the sense of our neighbors or our family or our polis or our city. We're only just starting to think about it properly in the sense of the earth system. But then there's also that kind of much wider catchment, which is how might ethics fit into the cosmology in the long run? So yeah, I think that I think that's what makes it interesting. Amazing. And you've described your work as being caught in between the poles of existential risk, which Schopenhauer is on the side of, and existential hope. Can you take us through the bridge between the two? How can we get from a place of utter world-ending fracture to a semblance of hope and futurity? Yeah, I think they're two sides of the same coin. So historically, uh, at least they are. And I think when I say history, it's always with a sense of a continuous process from past to present to hopefully future. But yeah, so when I say two sides of the same coin, the big enlightenment lesson at the risk of being oversimplifying is that we are kind of responsible for our values in a universe that wasn't made to promote them or even to annihilate them, both sides of the coin again. With that lesson comes the idea that because it's entirely our responsibility, without us around, they would be annihilated and that would be the end of the things that we think of as valuable, which might sound strike as very obvious to our kind of modern secular mind, but rewind 300, 400 years and it genuinely wouldn't have been. Part of the thing that I explore in, in uh, X-Risk is this idea that that even for kind of the French atheistic philosophers of the Enlightenment who were materialists and deists, not theists in your common sense term, they still thought that value would stick around because they were convinced that after a couple of aeons, humanity or something morally equivalent would re-evolve. Even in kind of very secularized materialistic context, this idea of a permanence of value beyond human action persists. So to get back to this big enlightenment lesson, yeah, it's the idea that it is in our hands. Sometime in 400, 500, 300 years ago, that idea of an indestructibility of value transitions into an idea of its destructibility. And with that, you get 
the sense that not only can it be radically diminished, it can also be massively expanded and maximized. So from that core insight of the Enlightenment, which which you find expressed in Kantian justice-based ethics, but you know, more so in kind of utilitarian frameworks, you get this idea of existential risk being the kind of secular destruction of value from the world and existential hope, which is the idea that we we ourselves through our own actions and hard work can massively maximize it. Yeah, and I love hearing you talk about the invention of existential risk, that there's some kind of change in psychology or a sense of self, and now we know that there is an end. And I think maybe the flip side of that is that now that we know there is an end, how should we live our lives differently? As someone who's been working on this for a long time, how you live your life differently knowing that the extinction of humanity is a possibility and it will happen one day? It's definitely made me uh, far more, um, I just thought, I, I think like care far more. I'm not sure if it's just me and the kind of growing up when I did, you know, there's a very kind of end, end of history, all of this, you know, kind of eye roll stuff that we can hand wave to and this kind of sense of just, I just didn't really care about anything, you know, um, I think one of the things that's really struck me a lot more recently is I kind of just realized this, it really was only very recently that philosophers like really started thinking seriously about it in a kind of rigorous and quite, I guess, I guess the word I'm looking for is serious sense. So like, obviously I, I, you know, I find people all the time, you know, I'll go and read someone from a long time ago and they'll say, they'll say, oh, of course the extinction of humanity would be awful, but it's always as an aside or like a buttress to another argument or like a kind of rhetorical firework, like a flourish. But yeah, just kind of a unified framework for thinking in it just like really only emerges in the eighties. And the kind of event that I, see as being kind of kind of sea change moment there is yeah Derek Parfit uh, in his book Reasons and Persons the, the concluding section is just him presenting this thought experiment what is the comparative severity of the death of 100% of humanity and 99% 98% what that does and it's the best innovations in thinking are ones that seem obvious or perennial afterwards so you're just like oh of course everyone's always known that but what what he does what what happens there is he puts a structure on the badness of global catastrophe this is one thing that i'm really hope to contribute towards is disambiguation of the really fuzzy bundle of ideas that we have when it comes to end of the world apocalypse millennium i was seeing articles at the beginning of lockdown saying that lockdown was an existential risk to the hospitality sector and there's this kind of big fuzzy bundle and all of those scenarios all of those words are so different i think to say in a sense that it was only in the 80s that philosophers started seriously thinking about this there's something kind of rarefied and you know cloistered and academical about that when i talk to people about the history of thinking about extinction people always bring up thomas malthus him you know being the guy who said the you know the means of subsistence would always be outrun by the amount of mouths to feed malthus nowhere talks about human extinction what he talks about the most extreme reading you could possibly put on it is civilizational collapse the kind of most realistic reading of it is he talks a lot about famine and disaster but you know not even civilizational collapse so yeah it's, it's i think in our minds we tend to bunch all these things together i'm just curious what keeps you up at night these days is there any question on your mind that won't let go of your psyche 
one thing is how you know woefully underprepared we are for kind of anything so it's like one thing that does worry me is this kind of sense of the, every year the kind of ability for an individual to end the world comes slightly more likely with technological progress and you see, yeah you see you know the ability for stuff that's just like quite not that far off on the horizon to just be absolutely or how you know how can we think about how ethics fits into the cosmos and what the potential is to go back to Parfit, he has this really interesting idea that kind of atheistic ethics is only just beginning so we're at this kind of you know grand dawn of thinking about ethics in a way that isn't tied to tradition the authorities of dogma and stuff like that which is an idea that i really like and i sense is in a sense true a lot of philosophers have been secular and atheistic and have said very important things about ethics but it's often been kind of meta ethics and it's actually doing things in the world in a completely desacralized world is that is historically comparatively a very new thing in terms of the main things that interest me and i think about is that is that we spent so much time presuming value is indestructible all the stuff i said earlier thinking that there is a kind of sense in which values gelled with the wider structure of the cosmos and history and judgment day all of these ideas and and now, since the scientific revolution, Copernicus, things like that, there's this kind of decentering thing, this, this kind of move away from the human in all senses. These two form two poles of ways of thinking about humanity and its relation to the cosmos throughout history. And yeah, I think both of them are wrong in a sense. So like the completely decentering drive, which is expressed in so many ways, like romanticism, the sublime, the idea of the smallness of the human in the face of wilderness. Today, the discourse around like humanity being this destructive world bane caused the sixth mass extinction that you'll find kind of in The Guardian and places like that, all the way to the kind of more academic end of things where you get post-humanity scholars saying things that, you know, the human needs to be decentered entirely and we need to kind of celebrate everything beyond the human, all the fungus and tentacular exuberance of vibrant matter, all of that, all of that kind of stuff, you know. I think, yeah, those in both directions, those things have kind of got it wrong is that we're very young in this sense that we, even though we you know, potentially could curtail the entire future, we are very young and obviously our history is riddled with errors, but we have the potential to correct them. And I, yeah, I think the universe clearly doesn't care about us, but that means in both ways, going back to what I said earlier is we don't live in the best of all possible worlds, but neither are we created as the world bane. So it's this way of balancing these two ways of looking at the worlds and trying to find a way through them. That's what drives me in a sense. One of my professors in college used to always say, we live in the most mediocre of all mediocre worlds in between the best and the worst. I'm also really curious, do you have like some kind of defense of why the end of values is such a thing to avoid? Most things come to end, species go extinct all the time. Why should humans be the ones to persist? Or is there some kind of benefit to something like value going away, especially seeing that value change dramatically over time? Humans are currently, insofar as we know, the only beings that respond to ethical argumentation. So, you know, in the 60s, there was this big interest in dolphins, and they thought the dolphins could be equitably intelligent to us in the sense of linguistic capacity, which then would also perhaps imply 
things like ratiocination and ethical reasoning. Unfortunately, it turned out that they are very smart, but they are nowhere near us in terms of linguistic aptitude. So we, are, we seem to be the only ethical being on the planet. Of course, that doesn't mean we're the only being with ethical worth. Biocentrism is quite high up on my kind of list of values and priorities. I think life in itself is a good thing. Now, obviously, the Schopenhauerians and the kind of suffering focused people would say, now, you know, wait a minute, because life is basically suffering, so you shouldn't be glib about it. You know, insofar as everyone, everyone is a value centrist, we can disagree on our values, but insofar as we are the one locus of that disagreement, that mere ability to disagree, agree, reconcile, however you want to put it, then I think that, yeah, our main priority has to be to protect us. Now, that's not because humans inherently, you know, the kind of genome or the, you know, biophysical makeup of humans is in any sense elevated or admirable or a likeness of any image. It's just that we happen to be this locus, this foothold of value in an otherwise uncaring universe. I think humans don't matter because we're humans. I think we matter because we recognize ethics. I was going to ask you about the Gaia hypothesis, this idea that humans are here to propagate bacteria and that the entire world is connected through this, this common surviving organism that has been around since the dinosaurs will be here long after we're gone when someone explodes. I'd love to know if you believe in it or have, have any like, thoughts and reconciling as a question of values intelligent versus survival. I think, yeah, the, I mean, the Gaia hypothesis, Lovelock's really interesting. The ways in which it's interpreted can tend into that theodicy versus worst of all possible worlds extremities. So as a competing hypothesis, the Medea hypothesis, there is the life is this kind of nasty perturbation on the Earth system. And so the Earth system is to return to equilibrium, is trying its best to get rid of life with these kind of sequential mass extinctions. There is clearly massive resilience and like robustness in the biosphere. But to go back to this thing of saying, we all tend to think very parochially when it comes to the way that value fits into the world. Here, we're obviously talking about biodiversity as a kind of non-anthropocentric value. But yeah, the thing I would point out is that based on current estimates, the biosphere is going to run down in a billion years. So it does actually have a hard limit, I guess. And so that's due to the running down of the like carbon silicate cycle and all these kind of geochemical feedback. It's just in a sense, again, a return to the eternalist nonchalance to be like, oh, well, of course, humans will re-evolve at some point to be like, oh, well, humans might die as 99.9% of all other species have died, but the biosphere will remain. Well, no, it won't. Like, <laughs> and, uh, you know, this is picking up on an argument made by Anders Sandberg, who's uh, one of the people I work with at the Future Humanity Institute. He has this really brilliant argument that humans being intelligent technological beings are the only beings that can potentially artificially extend the lifespan of the biosphere. So he argues, and uh, he's writing a paper with one of his colleagues on this, that using solar shades and other kind of geoengineering techniques, that we could expand the, the lifespan of Gaia by a billion years, potentially at the upper limit, something like five billion years. Now that's like a lot more life. So say that you're a biocentrist, Gaian, deep ecologist who kind of hates humanity and thinks that we're just this nasty perturbation. Well, that's actually a really good argument that even if you don't care about humans intrinsically, that we should stick around because we can put our solar parasols up and keep the whole system around for a lot longer, which I think I find that is a really persuasive argument. Yeah, and I guess we've been talking about life for a while, but what is life for you? 
life is structures of matter that expend energy to perpetuate themselves very kind of very science answer i guess but i think that, that does come with profound consequences is that you know it's tending to perpetuate itself it tends to spread and it tends to diversify most of the firmament most of the heavens is completely inorganic and there's nothing going on there obviously we can discuss the intrinsic value of rock and vacuum but i think most people would just intuitively tend to think that there isn't much interesting going on in the barren expanses life is potentially the beginning of a shockwave that could spread outwards and you know kind of just waken the whole of the galaxy to life and the richness of experience one of the favorite quotes is this russian soviet astrophysicist yosef shklovsky and he said so he used to be one of these people who was super optimistic that we would turn our radio antenna on and discover that we live in this like noisy populous milky way and that was in the 60s and then by 1980 he decided that we were completely alone and so then he said well life itself and particularly intelligent life but life itself is therefore incredibly special and he described it as potentially being the vanguard of matter so what he meant by that was that it's this it's like the beginning of this transition to an entire different stage for the entire galaxy so we're like this seed if you like that has within itself the potential to change everything i'm aware that most people might think of these as kind of megalomaniac visions if we care about anything it doesn't even have to be the noble values of enlightenment or humanism just kind of life itself then since we're the only stewards that seem to be or caretakers if you want that are around at the moment then i think that means that we have to care a lot more about ourselves even if even if you tend to be someone who has a low view of humanity i really love that like more biological understanding of life and i, I keep me thinking about like your common defense of that like that there is a mind intent reality and this is a way in which i think you like paraphrase the party in X-Rex. If the Earth weren't feel there's anything missing, human life wasn't here. But the converse is definitely not true. Like, if the Earth was not here, there'd be no possibility for life. And I, I'm really interested in this in this ingrained nature, or that there is this empty cosmos, wasted space. There, there's matter, but no no life going on. And yet on Earth, that that life, that like inert matter, the Earth is made of, of cosmos, meteors, carbon. In the atmosphere since the Big Bang, yeah, there's just immediate dependence and the immediate effect going back, going back to like John Locke. Like our our entire who we are is dependent on our environment, where our parents were, where we grew up, our geography. And this is it's just like this, this, this dual necessity where like the world does not need us to survive and maybe it needs us to for, to live for longer. But there's a sense like this is this is very immediate need of resources on human. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm interested in, in this in this like two way street. How the human is like, reliant on matter in a very very basic sense in a way that matter is not dependent on on the human. I think that welfare is a good baseline uh, to you know. Um, there's also, um, I think also to kind of, it's kind of linking to the idea that I said, if we can disagree on our values and history is the disagreement of values across time, we can do all that. But the very condition of possibility of that is having uh, ethically literate beings around. This is the idea that, you know, Nick Bostrom, like a lot of his ideas, you know, he proposes it and then kind of it doesn't come back. But I think it's a really important idea 
you know, it's kind of treasure trove where he'll like put, put out ideas and then kind of not actually return to them. But it's this one where it's kind of option value. So there's a value in uh, retaining the ability to correct ourselves. So we don't now know what the ultimate best terminal value should be. But there's a that means that there's an immense value in just sticking around to be able to work what the work what that is. Yeah, again, you know, that's why Schopenhauer or the antinatalists or, you know, the kind of uh, button pushes are wrong is no one knows yet. But I think that, that you know, that gives a, that's, uh, yeah, one of the ways I kind of think about it is, you know, keeping history going. And there's like clearly value in that. If I had to put like a unique spin on it, I think keeping history going has a, a unique value to it. Is that what motivates you to be a writer and philosopher? What I hope to do is just maybe convince more people that it is perhaps the most important issue and one that we should all seriously think more about and expend more resources on. So, you know, yeah, maybe in an indirect sense. Yeah, I think that it would be good if we did figure out more things, to put it like really basically, yeah. Yeah, and I think that might be a good point to end our discussion on. And before we end our time together, we'll be all right if I ask you a few underrated, overrated questions. <laughs> oh yeah, the, the kind of uh, the, the the naturalistic fallacy in me doesn't want to say overrated or underrated. <laughs> cool. So the first one's modernity. Um. Oh yeah, hundred uh, percent underrated, massively underrated. And modernity comes with the whole train of heavy issues, but you know, from alienation all the way up to the ability to destroy anything of worth. Yeah. Obviously, those are very serious things, but um, you know, I'm going to be very Kantian about it and say, you know, you can never grow up without undertaking risk and, you know, those kind of things. Uh, I think a lot of people have a kind of skewed sense of the value of modernity and, you know, the reasons why we should continue to champion it. Um, it's very fashionable at the moment to say, oh, you know, how bad it is. And admittedly, a lot of its defenders, uh, you know, kind of the more visible ones like Steven Pinker and stuff, you know, I, yeah, it's like a very different um, type of optimism that he has. But I mean, there is like, there is just massive amounts of evidence that uh, modernity has just pulled just inordinate amounts of people out of like poverty and misery. And, uh, you know, I don't think that pointing to alienation and the collapse of secure uh, hierarchical structures and this comfort that that brought us, um, I don't think that kind of outweighs uh, those things. That's great. Um, style. Yeah, underrated. I think that there's a lot of work to be done, and I haven't done any of it. Um, I'm sure other people are doing it in kind of terms of resuscitating aesthetics and, yeah, a notion of style. I mean, I know uh, Pete Wolfendale, he does some really great stuff on beauty and kind of rehabilitating beauty in the present epoch. Warford Sellers. Wilfred Sellers. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, underrated. You, you, I meet a lot of people that have no idea who he is. Uh, who are, you know, I should obviously qualify that as a. It's, it's silly to say expect everyone to know who a, a philosopher is. People that I would kind of expect to know who Sellers is, like, don't. Um, his take on the philosophy of science was like very influential for me, showing that you can uh, be interested in Kant and also be kind of a sensible naturalist is, is I think that's like a massive contribution. He is also unreadable, so, <laughs> so that doesn't help. And there's another philosopher up next, Gunter Anders. 
Interesting one is like, I was kind of aware of him through the philosophical anthropology stuff. So like he, one of his really early things was an essay on like the curse of freedom. He put a really negative, you know, quite dark spin on it, which, which I liked. There were people who had really done good work on showing how he was like a precursor to a lot of thinking about existential risk, even in the sense of, yeah, you know, his work on nuclear threat and also human obsolescence. So yeah, uh, underrated uh, for me as well. Yeah. So next one's waste. I mean, I guess in a sense, everything is a beautified waste if you want to take a certain look on it, extending from the definition of life. But yeah, I mean, you know, uh, we live in an entropic universe. There will be an end. There is a kind of end stop on all value. I don't think that that leads to the nihilistic conclusions that a Bataille or a like-minded thinker would kind of uh, think it does. There's an interesting thing when I was, you know, kind of thinking about Bernal and his idea of the Omega terminal point being, uh, you know, the beautification of the universe is like, that's intelligence's job, it's vocation. In a sense, beauty is useless, right? So from a certain perspective, everything good is waste anyway. So, <laughs> But yeah, I don't think that should lead to nihilistic conclusions because, you know, we can uh, make beauty out of the waste. So I don't know, um, ambiguous. Perfection. The word itself, before it had anything to do with moral excellence or like a normative assessment, it just meant like a point of completion or fulfillment. There's like really good stuff in Aristotle on that. And it just filters into Christianity and becomes this like really interesting obsession. And as soon as you get the stress on the unobtainability of perfection, its transcendence becomes negatively defined. And then you get all the mystics saying that you have to annihilate yourself to reach perfection. Yeah. And then, you know, that trickles through into science fiction through people like Talhard de Chardin. And you get this idea that in perfecting itself, civilization must uh, kind of disappear, which is kind of commonly used as a critique against progress or meliorism or also things like transhumanism is always used as a rhetorical stratagem and critiques about that. But um, that's the way I'm thinking about perfection at the moment. Yeah. And lastly, barnacles. <laughs> Um, yeah, barnacles, yeah, underrated because they just received so much scorn and hatred from those, those nasty Victorian biologists. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I mean, it's the barnacle sacrificed its head but became a far more efficient organism for it, presumably. So, I don't know, I, I think the barnacle is, is underrated because it's such an like, interesting kind of symbol of the different ways of misinterpreting evolutionary theory and interpreting it. And it's one of those kind of little moments in the history of ideas that's just it's so good when you find one like that, you know, the way in which you go from, you quite quickly go from Piers of Darwin being disgusted by the degeneracy of barnacles towards early futurists like uh, Haldane and Bernal kind of fearing that if we go down the path of easy pleasure, then we will like devolve into barnacle beings. Hopefully, if nothing else, X-Risk will re-centralize the barnacle in the history of evolutionary thinking. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's all the questions I had for you today. Thanks so much again for taking time to talk to me. That's a good place to end. Yeah, yeah, it's been really fun. Thanks.